episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. Welcome to the show, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Olga, good to see you. It's good to see you too. And what has been keeping your legislative self busy this week? Ooh, um, a whole bunch of things. Um, so last night, um, we I chaired the um, implementation of the People Waiting Task Force, um, and we had our first public hearing last night. And what's interesting about that, not just from the perspective of folks who are interested in the implementation of the People Waiting Study, um, but... It was the first hybrid public meeting, that um, public hearing that the legislature has had. So we have had many, many public hearings in real life before, and there's a very standard procedure for those. And we've had quite a few public hearings via Zoom since the pandemic started. But over the last month, we've been transitioning to a hybrid format for our legislative meetings. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time we've had a public hearing in that same form. Simultaneously, the Joint Rules Committee, which is who sort of sets um, the rules for the State House, unanimously passed a mask mandate for the State House the night before the hearing. Um, And so it was... There was a lot of new things happening all at once and it went really well. And I was really grateful that there was someone who testified while they were cooking dinner. There was someone who testified with like their kid climbing all over them. I'm sure they would have been happier if their kid wasn't climbing all over them. (laughs) But I was just so glad that folks from Rattleboro could test and Marlboro could testify without driving all the way up in a rainstorm. I was really glad that parents could be home with their families. It felt, um, it felt really lovely. It was still a fish. It still had that sort of nice official feeling of an in-person public hearing, but so many more opportunities for participation. So that was very cool. Before you go on to your, what else has been keeping you busy? I'm curious, has your um, meeting style, how you lead meetings, has that changed as a result of either Zoom or these hybrid meetings? Like, how have you adapted to them? Um, So I talk with my hands a lot. um, And I grew up in a culture where interrupting is how you show that you're interested in something. Mm. Um, And interrupting on Zoom, the layering, there's like all kinds of um, linguistic words for Um, collaborative layering is sort of, I think, one of the phrases for people who talk that way. In fact, I sometimes even interrupt myself to add another layer to what I'm saying, but (laughs) um, that's not possible on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And in the hybrid meeting, the people who are participating via Zoom, because of the way the cameras are set up, they actually can't see my face when I'm chairing. Mm -hmm. Um, They can only hear me because the camera is facing the full in-person committee, not each individual person, which I think is something that we need to change if we're going to be doing this um, in committee rooms. So all that to say, I think um, 
the more subtle cues that are very useful parts of running a meeting or ensuring that witnesses feel that we're listening to them um, or helping people understand it's time for them to stop talking. All of those cues aren't available in a hybrid mm-hmm. meeting a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found myself needing to be much more explicit about certain things, including saying like, thank you so much for being here. We were really listening to what you said, or um, I'm sorry, but your time is up. And so being explicit about those meeting cues is I think in some ways helpful for the other people in the room in a way that the subtlety was not. And so that's something that I've been just sort of thinking about since last night. It is also profoundly overstimulating. Mm. Um, So I, in the room that we're in, there's me and my body and then the other sort of, you know, there's maybe 20 people in the room all with masks on. It's a very large room. Um, And so I have to track all of those real life people. And then we have four big screen TVs. So everyone that is testifying or attending. So I have some legislative colleagues who are on the task force who are attending via Zoom. And so they have big pictures on the screen and I'm attending to them. And then um, I also have whatever materials we're discussing up on my personal device. Um, And then the collaboration between the committee assistant and the chair is a really powerful part, especially of um, Zoom facilitation mm-hmm. um, because Sorsha, who is our brilliant, amazing, magical committee assistant, um, is the one who sort of handles letting people in from the waiting room or muting and unmuting people. And when we are facilitating in a hybrid meeting, she's the only one who can see the participant list. Right. Um, right. And so that is it's a really interesting part of it, sort of all of the different pieces of information I need to track on a human and technical level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm grateful for this task force that I get to alternate with my colleague, Ruth, so that, um, because I think sometimes I'm not able to pay as much attention to the content as I might like to. I I hear you. Sometimes when I am hosting or moderating, say a a panel with a lot of people, yeah, it's a lot of plates you're kind of spinning. Mm-hmm. at once and and sometimes content's a little harder to to follow. I don't know about you, but I tend to get so wrapped up in the people at that moment. Like do they look interested? Am I losing the audience? Um does it seem am I seeing looks of confusion anywhere? And and where the folks are at that moment that it's only later that I have to look back and say, "Now what do we actually <laughs> What did we talk about? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good oh. luck as you go on and adapt and learn these skills. Thank you. You're and I, you know, for all of the difficulty of it, um, I'm just still so excited about how much more accessible it makes the legislative process. Like yeah, I am just so happy about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause Vermont, uh, is small state, but boy, it is not easy to get anywhere, anywhere mm-hmm. fast. So, but I will, for people who have not been on the highway in the, in a while, the grass is starting that in the median, the grass is starting to shade, 
turn that incredible shade of purple that happens in the fall. And that is just like one of my favorite things about commuting. And so um, if you haven't been on the highway in a while, I recommend just like even going a couple stops so you can see the purple grass. It is just the prettiest. The purple (laughs) and the wildflowers in like the spring and early summer. I love that Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. We have some good highways. We do. And Mm -hmm. what else is keeping you, keeping your attention right now? So the first meeting of the Unemployment Insurance Task Force is meeting on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. And so I've been working to develop the agenda for that and figure out what we'll be working on there. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, I would, I'm sorry, this is new information to me. I missed it somehow. Give us a little background on this task force. Like, why was it formed? What are some of its goals? Yeah, so um, the unemployment insurance system in Vermont, as with really a lot of the rest of the country, has been a um, total mess since the pandemic began. None of our systems were ready for the scale of claims they'd be receiving. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone is, um, and I don't know if they could have been, but they were very far from prepared, um, both from an IT software perspective and from a human capacity perspective. And um, we use the unemployment insurance system, and we've talked about this before on the show, uh, in a lot of ways as a substitute family medical leave program. Um, we told people that they needed to you know, stay home and stay safe in a lot of cases, or people didn't have childcare or um, had vulnerable health. And because we don't have a family medical leave program that's universal in Vermont, a lot of folks um, used unemployment insurance for that. And so the system um, isn't really designed for that. And so there were a huge number of legal hurdles there. So over the last two years, the legislature has done, um, has begun a lot of conversations about unemployment insurance in Vermont. And so In the spring, um, we did one sort of comprehensive package um, that passed into law and that did a few things. Um, It created a situation where, um, so employers pay into the unemployment insurance trust fund based on a formula that both takes into account um, how much is needed in the fund, Mm -hmm. um, how low the fund is, how much their personal liability for the fund has been over the last year, that's called their experience rating, and then how much sort of generally has been paid out over the last year. Um, And that's all sort of calibrated to a schedule um, and like some mathematical formulas. The last two years have been, as we just said, um, hugely anomalous, (laughs) a little different. And so if we hadn't done anything in this legislation, because of how much was taken out of the trust fund, um, we, unemployment insurance rates would have skyrocketed. Um, And we don't really like to have that happen. We like to have um, any fees, any payments, any taxes to be following sort of a predictable enough curve that individuals and businesses can plan for them. And so this bill 
contained a provision that would essentially sort of like hold people harmless from the last year in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of deep mathematical details of it that I'm not going to get into at all right now because it's pretty boring for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also acknowledged that a lot of Vermonters were not receiving enough benefits um, from the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, that um, the payments are not sufficient to really make up for lost wages for a lot of people. It's a percentage replacement. And that percentage replacement means a lot more to someone who's sort of at the higher end of the income spectrum and lost their income than someone at the lower end of the income spectrum and lost their income. And we had, we also know that this was sort of, um, some people call it a she session, um, meaning that women were particularly hit hard by the um, recessionary aspects of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of debates in the spring about how best to get more benefits to the people who needed it um, related to the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, um, especially in the context of knowing that the federal supplemental benefits were going to end, and they did just end a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the context of all, and so we had a lot of debates about the best way to do that. And those debates became very, very limited by the fact that the computer system that the unemployment insurance system uses is more than 20 years old. And it's very hard to change the formulas in the system. And so we decided um, because the only way we could get more benefits to Vermonters given the limits of the computer system was to actually have it replace the federal supplemental benefits when the federal supplemental benefits ended, because there was already sort of coded place in the computer system for that. Um, And so we could hatch that new payment right back in rather than changing the calculation. Um, And so we voted to do that. And then there were two other aspects of this legislation that I'm going to talk about because I've been talking for so long, Olga. That's okay. Um, We like context and we my like- ringer is on, which doesn't ever happen here. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the two other aspects were the fact that Vermonters have really, 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 really struggled to get their benefits that they are owed. And we need some accountability for that. And so we have a lot of questions about what is it about the way the unemployment insurance system is designed that it prioritizes protecting the state from fraud over getting Vermonters the benefits that they need. And that's another thing that we've talked about on the show before. Um, And so we created a um, study that the auditor's office is contracting with an outside consultant to do. That's really, really focused on this issue of how do we get Vermonters the benefits that they deserve in a way that is timely and meaningful and respectful um, while also protecting from large scale fraud. What happens is a lot of Vermonters are getting very swept up in what I think of is like an excessive focus on tiny fraud Um, because the department of labor considers a mistake to be fraud. Um, And most of us, when we're filling out bureaucratic paperwork, make mistakes. We do. 
Um, you know, and I know that when I've filled out applications for things, I necessarily, I don't necessarily remember exactly what my wages were three months ago. And so sometimes I might round up or down, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really need to have someone who's expert in sort of conversations around fraud and benefits provision to dive deep and say like, how is this sort of obsession with fraud keeping us from getting people the services that they need from state government? And so there's a study happening right now that the auditor's office is working on that's focused on that. And that's going to be like where all the fun happens because that's Mm -hmm. like the real sort of like accounting for what's been a um, really a complete failure of state government over the last Mm -hmm. two years. And so that's happening. I'm really excited about that. And then and do the, we know when that study is supposed to be given to the release? We were supposed to get a draft in November, but um, unsurprisingly, a lot of state governments are doing detailed analysis and accounting mm. and studies of their unemployment insurance systems. And there weren't actually all that many consultants who were focused on this before the pandemic. And so it took the auditor's office a while to find someone who was up to the task. And so they got started a little bit late Mm -hmm. um, and thinking that the report might be a little bit later than we expected. So likely we'll receive it sometime this winter. Okay. Oh, I can't Um, wait to read it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Like so excited about it. And then the last piece... um, Well, it's not the last piece. There's a few more pieces, sorry. Um, And then we also appropriated a bunch of money for the IT system to be modernized. Right, right. Um, The unemployment insurance IT system to be modernized. And the sort of technical IT pieces of that is being handled by the Joint Information Technology Oversight Committee. And we call that JITOC. (laughs) And they're working on that. And then the very last piece though I'm sure I left something out, is the task force that I'm talking about. And that's the Unemployment Insurance Task Force. And our job is, for the most part, to look at what is sufficient. What are sufficient benefits for Vermonters? What is a sufficient balance in the trust fund? And um, what is a sufficient amount that businesses will pay into that trust fund so that Um, there's enough money in there that beneficiaries can get their needs met, um, but not so much that they're paying so much in unemployment insurance that they don't have more, that businesses don't have money to set aside for wages. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we're focusing on. We just have three meetings. They're each going to be full day meetings. Mm -hmm. And the first meeting we, which is on Tuesday, um, there's four of us. It's myself, um, Michael Marcotte, who's the chair of the House Commerce Committee, Michael Sorotkin, who's a senator from Chittenden County and the chair of the Economic Development Committee, and then Senator Chris Pearson, who's also from Chittenden County and sits on um, the Senate Finance Committee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the four of us are doing this, and we're going to start by really looking at what does every other state in the country do for benefits provision. Um, What do dependent care benefits look like? Um, What does it look like to change the rate so that folks at the lower end of the spectrum get a fuller reimbursement maybe? Um, What does it mean to raise the cap? 
all of these questions, um, really looking at how benefits are delivered and how much they are, and if they're su sufficient for Vermonters. And we're going to do that in the context that the federal government sets like a really huge pile of rules mm -hmm. on how this works. And so that's what we're going to dive into for our first meeting to just sort of like talk about what is possible. Mm-hmm. And then our second meeting, we're going to talk in October, we're going to talk about what we would actually like to do based on what is possible. Mm -hmm. And then our third meeting, we're going to talk about like what actually needs to happen for that to happen. So, um, you know, review draft legislation, review the report, um, review um, the IT needs of whatever those changes are. This is all happening in some funny context. It's all happening in the context of that supplemental benefit that I told you about. Right. That I was so excited about that we passed this spring because it was the only technical way to get more benefits to Vermonters. Um, it turns out is actually in violation, according to the feds, of some of their rules about how we use our trust fund. Um, and the department seemed to have not had that flag at the time. Um, hmm. And so we just found that out. And so that's something else we're going to dive into on Tuesday is to learn more about um, what our options are for next steps, given that we have legislation on the books that um, guarantees this $25 supplemental benefit to Vermonters. And yet um, the feds won't permit us to implement it. Wow. And just so you know, um, you know, there's some places where going back and forth with the feds makes a lot of sense. The federal government pays um, for all of our unemployment insurance staff mm -hmm. um, for the entire Department of Labor's staff, mm -hmm. basically. It's funded through federal dollars. It's not funded through state dollars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's really complicated. It's also complicated by the fact that the legislation was really a um, comprehensive piece of legislation. It wasn't just, you know, four different sections. It was sections that were really dependent on each other. And so we did this holding harmless provision for employers while simultaneously making sure that more Vermonters are going to get more benefits. Um, and so implementing one piece of that without the other also yeah. is very, very problematic. And so we have to figure that out too. Mm. Wow. What a, Sounds a little bit like a can of worms. It's going to be a huge can of worms. <laughs> I love how you say it. You, you, you break out in a huge smile when you say that. Playing well, with the worms. <laughs> that's why government's so interesting is that every, you know, every, I think this is true all the time that there's always one thread's always connected to another one, but it's mm -hmm. so very explicit in state government um, yeah. and governance that all the issues are so interconnected. This is so true. This is so true. So I know you had um, a meeting with uh, the department today. Mm -hmm. And I know we have some kind of changes on the horizon. But before we get to that, because we have like five minutes in this this half um, before we, we hear from some un underwriters. So what do you think is really key just to leave listeners with right now? Because we just went through a whole bunch of context and information. I think that. Um both the administration and the legislature are working sometimes across purposes, sometimes together. Um, 
but acknowledging that there's a lot that needs to change in the way we deliver unemployment insurance benefits to people and that we um, are attacking that on a bunch of different fronts. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, none of that change is going to happen quickly. Yeah. And I hate that. Um, sometimes I love that government moves slowly. I think it's how we survived the Trump era. But it also means that I know that there are, you know, people all through the state that are really caught in a terrible cash 22 with the unemployment insurance system. And I wish I could fix the problems for them today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Well, Emily, thank you so much for that context and that broad overview. We on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. We're going to skip on over here from some of our underwriters, but stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps for the town of Brattleboro. For folks who might be new to the show, you can also find us on Emily's YouTube channel, our Facebook page, as well as... Um, Cap, uh, the Montpelier Happy Hour dot Captivate dot FM, which is our website, and anywhere you find podcasts, we have them there as well. And if you are in New England, especially Vermont, you can find us on Brattleboro Community Television, as well as several uh, peg stations around the state, which is kind of a cool little thing to evolve for us, wasn't it, Emily? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it we has talked to very fun to see the show spread around the state. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And to hear some folks will be like, Oh, yeah, I saw you on my mm-hmm. local station. And you're like, Wow, no way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get a little starry yard for that few moments. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Emily, and so I we, were just, we were just talking about unemployment insurance before yes. the break. And that is one really important piece of our labor law, our system of labor laws, um, which is really like a bargain um, between employers and employees and the government about how capitalism can sort of function. Mm-hmm. And um, Monday was Labor Day. Yes. And did our you go to the Bernie event. I did. I did. So our um, own Senator Sanders held a series of town halls around the state um, to celebrate Labor Day and to talk about the budget reconciliation package that he is pushing and leading on, as well as the infrastructure package that's coming. And I had the really fun opportunity of giving a speech at the rally, too, along with Senator Ballant. And so, um, yeah, we'd love to talk about that a little bit if we can, Olga. I, d- I think we definitely should, especially because I missed the event. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had a I had a paid day off for the first time in like ever. So I took total Labor advantage day. of that. <laughs> Ooh, love um, that. So I missed it. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your take on it. But before we do that, Emily, of course, we have to remind listeners of a few things. Oh, yeah. We do that every show. So. <laughs> 
The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the station, nor any of the other stations or platforms that the show is recorded on or broadcast through. They are just the opinions and perspectives of the host and the guest. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me, um, give me an overview of the Labor Day event, and I would love to hear what your speech focused on, because I do know that labor issues is is something that's very near and dear to your heart. Yeah. So um, the senator was Bernie. Um, It's always funny. It's like there's like the pop icon, and then there's the fact that like he's our federal senator, and I'm never sure which role I'm supposed to address him in. Um, so the Senator talked about the budget reconciliation package package and what this sort of once in a lifetime opportunity is that we're really stepping into to invest deeply in communities, um, to substantially expand the social safety net, um, make permanent the payments for children with the, for families with dependents, um, that were, put in the ARPA package um, to expand Medicare, to create a federal family medical leave program, to really substantially improve our childcare system. Um, Really just such good dreamy stuff that we've been working so hard to do on the state level. And it's very, very hard to do in Vermont without federal dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, We just don't, we struggle to find the capacity because it means that we have to make choices. Um, And the federal government has such a very different ability to raise funds than we do in Vermont. And so that opens up so many new opportunities. And so that is fantastic. He also talked about how important it is that we hold businesses accountable to paying their fair share. Um, And all in all, it was just a really, it was a really fun event. with really the the Labor Day emphasis on it, the labor emphasis on it was saying was just how America can come back to this ideal mm-hmm. of a strong middle class, um, and that people who work shouldn't be living in poverty. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny that some days that feels like such a bare bones minimum, and yet the fact that we're actually might be close to implementing that in this country is just awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and for you, what, what did that day mean? And what did your, um, what did your comments focus on? So, um, it was also the first night of Rosh Hashanah okay. on Monday, which is the Jewish new year. And, um, on the Jewish new year, we welcome it with sweetness to set intentions for the new year. And so people might've heard about apples and honey as a thing that people do on Rosh Hashanah. Um, but there's a lot of other ways of sort of welcoming and sweetness and abundance. People um, eat things with lots of seeds in them um, and sort of reflect on what we want to carry forward um, or what we would want to welcome more of. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the theme of the remarks that I gave. Um, and really, you know, specifically recognizing and having gratitude for the federal government um, for supplemental unemployment insurance, for the rental assistance, the really profound rental assistance programs that have rolled out, the direct cash payments to families, um, and then all of the money that we've been sent for the state to make its own decisions about what's best for Vermonters. Um, Mm. 
And so in that context, we've, Olga, talked so much about sort of what's possible when we invest in communities, right? Um, And about um, how much space that can free up for us to really participate. Mm -hmm. And so have been, you know, continued to think a lot about that and was remarking on that in my um, speech, in my remarks, um, that when the federal government steps up in this way, we have more space to invest in each other, Um, whether that's, you know, you have more breathing room. And so when your neighbor calls because their car's dead, you um, have a much easier time jumping in to help them out or when your kid's being really difficult if you don't feel like you're drowning in debt sometimes it's a little easier to sort of um be patient with them Mm -hmm. um but that like these essential constructs of vermont and how we commit to each other and how we're patient and kind in town meeting or at least patient (laughs) in town meeting um that all of those things are so much easier when like the really big stuff isn't so hard yeah yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was talking about that. Um, and then the other thing that I think is, you know, really important from the last year is that we all saw these cracks in the system. And I have, you know, probably spent more time talking to you, Olga, than anyone else about the cracks in the system that were revealed. Mm-hmm. And that I have gratitude for, even if we weren't able to fill the cracks, um, more of us are now aware of them. This is true. And I think that opens up a lot of really huge opportunities for us that we're going to need to keep on diving into in a pretty serious way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that includes, you know, the reckoning we've had around racial injustice, mm-hmm. um, as well as some of the really intense um, class dynamics and health dynamics that have been revealed. Mm-hmm. So the the infrastructure package mm-hmm. that uh, Senator Sanders talked about, mm-hmm. what what do you think is good to highlight from it as far as um, what what it will mean for Vermont, what it will mean for Southern Vermont? Mm-hmm. Um, so one piece of it is um, there would be a lot of money in there for broadband. And over the last um, year, two years, five years, um, will time ever come back in a meaningful way, Olga? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I think it's been warped beyond, it needs new definitions Beyond recovery. (laughs) Um, The work that we've done on broadband governance and the creation of these communication union districts, and the technical assistance that we've set up at the Public Service Department to support the communication union districts means that when we have a huge flood of federal money, we know exactly what to do with it. Yes, shovel-ready. And that was really the planning there. What? Shovel-ready projects, as they like to say. Exactly. Shovel-ready projects with really good Vermont-focused, Vermont-grown governance structures. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really, really exciting part of the infrastructure package. Another piece of the infrastructure package um, is going to be like roads and bridges and the recent storm damage we've had in Southern Vermont, I think is a really great example of how unclimate resilient our road systems are. 
And so there's a lot that needs to be done in Vermont around like modernizing culverts. Mm -hmm. Um, So unsexy and so necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's some of the infrastructure money. Um, Another piece that um, is also similarly unsexy, but incredibly necessary is Vermont's stormwater capacity. I was just going to ask you about that because the state's done a lot of work around stormwater and, and impervious services, surfaces and, uh, Yes, we have a lot of really great permitting around stormwater. And I actually shouldn't have said stormwater. What I should have said was septic systems. Uh, Um, Oh, Chris Campany, I hope you're listening right now because this is his thing. (laughs) Yeah. So um, in the larger towns around the state, um, this is not as big an issue. There's um, we have sort of aging sewage plants that need updating. Um, and we know that that's like a major pollutant and that needs to be fixed and we need money for that. Um, but that's actually not the worst of the problem. Mm-hmm. The worst of the problem is that our villages yes. have no capacity at all and need brand new municipal septic systems and wastewater systems if any new buildings will be built in any of those areas. Mm -hmm. And so what goes hand in hand with our housing crisis is actually this like wastewater sewage septic crisis um, as a major limiting force in our ability to build new housing. And it's not something that we talk about. So we have um, a lot of areas in Vermont have what people would sort of describe as exclusionary zoning and not um, sort of housing first, housing friendly zoning. And it is, in fact, not because of the usual reasons of um, people's desperate desire to maintain some sense of gentrified character, but in fact, because there is no wastewater capacity in those communities. Mm -hmm. And so we can try to rezone our way into this, but without um, really enormous investments in sewage systems, we are not going to be able to do it. So that's another piece of the infrastructure package. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe one day Chris Kempany can come on and talk to us about this for a long period of time. I think that would be great. I know he and I have, I've talked to him for many articles about this. And mm-hmm. I remember one article, one interview, he ticked off a number of larger properties Mm-hmm. Uh, he just went like up Route 30 and ticked off all these large proper- properties that had been on the market for a long time, had a lot of potential to become either new businesses, new mixed use buildings, new housing, but nobody wanted to touch them because to update the septic systems alone just was not happening. And so there's all this talking about infrastructure. There's all this infrastructure that's essentially going to waste because we can't deal with waste. Yes, yes. And there are all of these um, statewide funding mechanisms that are intended for economic development purposes um, that are being used for often developing wastewater infrastructure um, in a way that's very much like a square peg round hole Hmm. solution. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no other funding for this. And so um, TIPS are really um, 
right now the only tool in town's toolboxes to make this happen. And there are very inefficient, non-cost-effective, complicated way of building out a septic system. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and especially given the way our education fund is structured and our property taxes are structured, it's um, it winds up costing all Vermonters more every single time we do that. And so we, um, yeah, so that's another reason to really keep on diving in on that issue and gratitude for the feds for perhaps freeing up some funding for us for that. And then the last thing in the infrastructure bill that I am aware of um, is like some, you know, Green New Deal style stuff. Um, Some money for us to make some real changes on um, greenhouse gas infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so that is a lot of job training programs to have people shift careers um, to greener careers. And that's really exciting, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as money to sort of help communities make those transitions. And so um, and we've already sort of started some of that process with looking at both um, home heating systems and um, business heating systems, as well as transportation dollars and how those are spent. Great. Great. Yeah, there are pieces of the infrastructure package that used to be there that aren't there anymore. And those were the social infrastructure pieces, which I was the most excited about. Oh, um, and that's okay. the stuff like the childcare expansion and the family medical leave stuff. And so it looks like they're going to try to put that into budget reconciliation instead. Um, mm-hmm. At the federal level. At the federal level. Okay. But that was originally in the infrastructure package when it was first proposed, was it was this combination of physical infrastructure and social instru- right. infrastructure. And what's interesting about that, one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that physical, the jobs that are created with physical infrastructure jobs are generally jobs for men and the social infrastructure jobs are generally jobs for women. Um, Hmm. And the job, basically the jobs for women were popped out of the package and the jobs for men were left there. And these are gross generalizations, but that is what the labor force trends are. Um, One other piece of the social infrastructure package that I actually don't know what happened to was really significant investments in home health, um, Uh, which is a major issue in Vermont because home health aides are paid minimum wage and it is, um, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for the people who are doing the work and it doesn't work for the people who are being cared for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I remember correctly, some of the folks I know who needed home health aides uh, to care for like elders in mm-hmm. their, their household. It it's also can be very complicated for them because you have to put like paperwork and bureaucracy wise, you have to be able to like hire someone and then that gets into tax implications and labor implications. And I feel that that's kind of a, a tough, a tough nut to crack as well for a lot yeah. of families. Yeah. Um, Quickly, we have a little bit of time left. I don't know if you can answer this, but I think it was the last time Senator Becca Ballant was on the show. We talked briefly about some of the money that's coming to communities through ARPA funds. Mm-hmm. And Vermont had run into a few uh, hurdles because we don't really have a county government. Oh, yeah. Has anything happened with mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, I actually can answer that, which is cool. cool. 
Um, the county government money was dispersed to the towns okay. according to the population of each town. And if we wanted to talk more on a future show about what towns are doing with that money, um, we could have someone from the League of Cities and Towns on to talk to us about that. I think that might be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had Ted on a couple months ago to talk about something that I don't remember. Uh, state con- local control versus Dylan's rule. Yes. Um, but there's a bunch of people at the Vermont League of Cities and Towns that are really focused on how to support Vermont towns as they sort of reckon with having, you know, more money than they've had in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. So that could be a really fun conversation. I think that would be a fun um, conversation. My understanding is that a lot of those towns are using it for um, wastewater infrastructure. <laughs> There you go. There you go. That kind of speaks to need right there. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, Fantastic, Emily. Anything else we want to kind of leave listeners with or things coming on the horizon legislative wise that they should be paying attention to? Um, One thing on the horizon that people might want to pay attention to. um, One thing we should probably revisit the pension conversation soon as the summer task force has been working. I think they've been meeting every week for the whole summer. And so let's schedule some time with someone from that task force soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing is in that context of the ARPA money, um, So the first big package of federal money that came in was the COVID relief fund money. And that had to be spent in less than a year. Right. So we like really rushed that out the door. The American Rescue Plan money, the ARPA money, had a much longer time horizon. And so we integrated some of it into our budget this year in COVID response work. But some of it we are saving for um, next year, even the year after. Mm-hmm. And the Speaker of the House and the Pro Tem are doing a tour around the state to have a series of very participatory meetings. They're not public hearings. They're more fun than public hearings, um, which I know is a low bar, <laughs> about um, ways that communities think we should be spending that money. And so folks should keep an eye out for those hearings. I think the first one is in Addison County um next week or the week after and the Wyndham County date hasn't been selected yet okay right but when we um have that date selected maybe we can have someone on the organizing team come on and tell us more about that definitely I think we should I think that's really I'd also be curious too just to talk to the speaker and the pro tem about after they've got a few of these what sound like town hall meetings under their belt kind of what themes are emerging, what they're hearing, mm-hmm. um, are there common threads between communities, that type of thing. I think that would be really interesting too. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So just um, as a little aside, I have decided that um, Jai talk is too good a word to pass up. And I, next time I write a sci-fi fantasy, I'm definitely naming a character Jai talk. Cause you just like, <laughs> I believe that Representative Sibelia sits on Jai Talk. And so if you need to do a little bit of research into the implications of the name, you could talk to her. I think that sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, we are just out of time, Emily. What should we toast to today? I think we should toast to sweetness. 
and setting intention, what would you like to toast to? I would like to toast to sweetness and dignified labor conditions. Here, here. Here, here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week for the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 100, 7.7 LP Brattleboro. As always, you can find us on Facebook and wherever you find podcasts, as well as Emily's YouTube page. Hey, Emily, where can folks find you if they have questions? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, and there you'll find links to my email address, my phone number, my social media accounts, any of dozens of ways to get in touch with me right there on emilykornheiser.org. And are you still holding the community forums and the the topic discussions or are those done? I am planning on, I'm having some trouble finding a location that feels COVID safe and trying to decide if maybe I should just do them via Zoom. You don't know, I'm caught in that Delta planning problem that I think many of our community institutions are in right now. Or or upturned apple cart take two. Yes. I feel like I'm in an upturned apple cart. And so I'm not sure what to do next. If anyone has any ideas, let me know. Will do. Will do. Hey, Emily, great to see you this week. Everybody have a wonderful weekend and we will, we will be back next week. Take care.